There's the clock ticking. I told JJ that uh, if we ran up against a, a hard finish here and I didn't have much time, I would just say, thank you for coming. Let's get to work. Um, and, I, and I have been doing that and really eager to have students arrive. And it's great to see the faculty here. Uh, I knew I was back at UD when Matt Waltz started comparing the faculty senate to Plutarch's lives. <laughs> and when he also knows how to use the word senectitude in a sentence. <laughs> I feel like I'm home again. It's the, the only place on the planet where that happens. Um, thank you all. I, I want to uh, begin by saying some words of thank and I, uh, thanks. And I do think that um, one of my key jobs as president is to thank people, to express gratitude, uh, to express gratitude to our alumni, uh, to our donor base, uh, to our, uh, our trustees, uh, but especially to parents who entrust their students to us and to the faculty. So thank you all. One of the things, people ask me what's changed and what hasn't. Uh, I mean, buildings like this have changed. I had a, uh, some Baylor friends up, some big donors to me at Baylor that I'm hoping might give a little bit to us here. And we had dinner in Cardinal Farrell, and then we had Super Dave. Super Dave was here when I was here. Uh, and and some, other, uh, some other folks drive us around campus. We went from uh, Farrell Hall to the chapel, which I don't think I'd ever been in at night, but backlit, it's really beautiful in the dark at night. And then we came over here and went up onto Brett's porch. And I got notes from them the next day talking about what a modern, beautiful campus the University of Dallas is. <laughs> I didn't show them the labs. <laughs> so it, one of the things that has not changed uh, at the University of Dallas is the faculty and the faculty's commitment to their own research and to bringing that research to bear in the classroom and outside of the classroom in the mentoring of students, graduate and undergraduate. So thank you all. Thank you for welcoming me back. Thank you for, um, I, I feel uh, as if I almost ought to say, um, whatever you get out of me is what you put into me some years ago. <laughs> Because I was really formed uh, in my three years here as a student. I feel really fortunate as well to be working with this administrative team. Karen Riley, who's our general counsel, is not here with us this morning. But uh, JJ, I mean, are we the first university where they put two philosophers in charge? <laughs> I've said to people who've mentioned this, I said, I hope it works out better for us than it did for Plato in Syracuse. <laughs> That's another thing about you get that joke, <laughs> at least a significant number of you. Uh, and uh, how about Jason? That was a great, we should tape that and put it on our website and send it to alumni. What a great pitch from someone who just joined us for what the University of Dallas is and the distinctiveness of the University of Dallas. Jason, thank you for, for joining us. And also, I really want to thank JJ for his leadership as provost. I couldn't be happier to work uh, with a provost who is so committed to the academic vision of the university. Thank you. So Jason and I are uh, the self-appointed designated eaters of the university. What we do is have meals with lots of people. And as Jason indicated, um, 
Uh, some of those meals have begun a little testily uh, with people complaining about X, Y, or Z, or X, Y, and Z. Um, we thank people, we listen to the complaints, we apologize for, uh, for whatever they've been disappointed in. And then, you know, one of the nice things for me as an alum is that I usually know some of the same teachers that, if, particularly if they're alumni donors, uh, have had. And so it's an opportunity to help people reconnect with what they love about the university and feel good about the place. And then we thank them again. Uh, uh, Jason came back uh, at one point and we were walking through uh, the suite of offices and walked by John Plott's office. And Jason said, okay, here's what happens in every meeting we have. They tur people turn to Jason and say, you've got a lot of work to do, and we love John Plotz. <laughs> and I have heard that repeatedly from the time I was interviewing for the job to the time I accepted it up to this morning. Uh, and uh, some people remark, John and I trade notes because I was a Catholic for 16 years at a Baptist university, and he's a Baptist at a Catholic university. <laughs> so we trade notes. Uh, and complain about our respective institutions and how, we, how they look from the inside and the outside. Uh, but some people have remarked on the irony that it took a Baptist to get a Catholic university praying in the last year. <laughs> Thank you, John. We have the prayer stone on the website. It has a new introduction to it because we're through that time of transition. Uh, I, I hope that we will continue to uh, pray this prayer of dependence. And the list of things that are on the website as well that John echoed here, dispositions to the good, honor truth, improve our listening, and manifest charity in all things. I think uh, if we can do that with one another, if we can do that with students, if we can do that with staff, and maybe if you'll extend a little bit of that to us strange creatures called administrators, <laughs> we will do very well. Uh, so thank you, John, for, for that, and, and let us continue to pray. I was, the last event I, I ran at, at Baylor, not only the Honors College, but some programs in D.C., and the last big event we ran in D.C. in April was an event on um, rational disagreement and civil discourse, um, which featured uh, Jonathan Haidt from NYU, uh, Robbie George from Princeton, um, uh, Candace Vogler uh, from the University of Chicago, and, and other uh, other. Uh, noteworthy uh, public intellectuals. Candace, who is uh, a brilliant philosopher and the most unassuming, humble person you'll ever meet, I know you find it hard to believe that those traits could go together, but they do in her. She's a recent convert to the Catholic ch Church, uh, a great um, student and scholar of Elizabeth Anscombe. And at one point they were asked, the panelists were asked about what they do to create a, an environment in their classroom so that there is civil, dis serious disagreement, rational disagreement, not irrational vituperation, serious disagreement, but so that it's conducted civilly. And she talked at the University of Chicago about creating a kind of rival community, that they were proud of the fact that they could talk about serious matters and disagree and still be friends. She also said to me something that really stuck with me. She says, when I get my class list, and they get them pretty early at the University of Chicago, she begins every morning praying for the students that she's going to see. Now, she doesn't pray in class at the University of Chicago, but she begins every morning by praying, just going over the names and praying for each of the students and praying for the class. 
Um, I thought about that uh, because uh, that was right after I had accepted this position. And I've been trying, I can't say I've been as disciplined as Candace, but I have been trying to pray for each of you, to pray for our students, to pray for our alumni. And I think this is a great practice, particularly for us as teachers, to pray for the students who will be in front of us. It's a great practice. Um, in our um, executive retreat that we had a few uh, weeks back, um, we read a book called Deep Work, uh, which is written by a computer scientist at Georgetown. I actually recommend, it's not a great book, but it's worth reading, and it's not a hard read. Uh, it's, it's a really good book for graduate students and um, assistant professors who are trying to get enough scholarship out to, and publication to get tenure about habits. But it's, it's, as you would gather from the title, it's about avoiding and curbing the culture of distraction uh, that we're all in. The, the, one of the ways to put that, I think especially for administrators, it's about avoiding the tendency to let your inbox in your email determine every day of work for you. And how to keep your mind on the bigger projects and carve out time. One of the things we were taken with was a section on collaborative deep work, which is really what you're doing in the classroom, right? Collaborative deep work is what you're doing in the classroom. We're, we've decided as, a, um, as an executive team to carve out uh, a three to three and a half period once a month, three and a half hour period once a month, where we go off campus and just talk about the big questions, not about the allegedly urgent things that have, and really urgent things that have just popped up in our inboxes. Our students come um, malformed by distraction, to put it mildly. I was talking with Tom Joswitz. He's someone you can blame for how I am today because he taught me years ago. Uh, but I was talking with Tom about the fact, and Stacy, my wife who's here, will be team teaching a freshman philosophy class uh, starting next week, uh, about the fact that students now sometimes show up without books. They think books are optional. This is bizarre, but it's happening. One of the things is that they're not, they're not used to holding books. Uh, if they've got them, they've got them on tablets. They're not used to reading things that are longer than a tweet. And what this university in particular asks of students is that they engage in deep work, deep intellectual work, that they learn how to read big books and think about them, that they learn how to think deeply about important questions. I think across the campus, one of the things we want to do, not just in the classroom, but in student life and in campus ministry, is to develop in our students a love of learning that leads them to want to start to develop these habits if they don't have them already. They're also a generation that is in some ways less resilient and more risk averse than previous generation. That's partly because of us as parents uh, monitoring everything they do and worried about every little risk that they might face and trying to keep them uh, safe and protected. I always say that I think one of our key jobs as educators of college students is to develop resilience in students. And that happens in class by having the right kind of challenge. It's got to be a challenge. We can't just affirm them and tell them that they're doing great work if they're indeed not doing great work. Uh, one of the things I think is still true, it certainly happened to me repeatedly in class here, was that I was told, Hibbs, this is okay, but it's not really good. And I think the faculty here does a very good job of setting the bar high and helping students to meet that bar. That's something I want to encourage you to keep doing. I think outside of the classroom, we 
have a wonderful new Dean of Student Life who's worked on these questions. We've got a wonderful campus ministry here uh, to think about ways that we can move these students to become more resilient and more confident. The students we recruited in the Honors College at Baylor, when we would uh, have sessions where they'd be sitting in front of us asking a panel of faculty questions, we'd get 18 different versions of the questions. How do I succeed? They all wanted to go to med school, law school, get into great graduate programs. And you'd tell them, I would tell them, you need to learn how to fail. And then you can see their minds working. I'm going to construct an opportunity to fail and recover from it. Like, no, that's not how it happens. <laughs> that's not real failure. But that's what they're thinking, right? The, the high achievers are thinking, I need to plan to be able to do that. So how do they fail and then bounce back, right? How do they take risks academically where they push themselves outside of their areas of confidence? But one of the wonderful things about our core is it demands that students go outside of their area of confidence. They can't just select a track of courses that will be comfortable to them. When I came here in 1980, uh, I got, didn't know much of this at the time, never imagined I'd be an administrator, let alone president, let alone president here. Did imagine at certain points and hoped that I might come back as a professor to be amongst the great faculty here. Uh, I was a first generation student, uh, went to Catholic high school, Catholic grade school, went to the University of Maryland the first two years because all my friends went to the University of Maryland, declared business as a major because all my friends declared business as a major, and discovered um, that I had a real love for um, English literature and philosophy, and also discovered by being challenged by a pretty secular university that I didn't know what I believed or had a clue why I should believe it or had thought much about how I ought to live. And over the course of two years, I began thinking a lot about those things, so much so that I entered the seminary down the hill here in 1980 as a junior. I didn't last too long in the seminary. I told Father Swift, I invited him to breakfast. I said, if you're willing to hang out with a dropout from HDS, I'll take you to breakfast. <laughs> but I knew that I found my calling up the hill here on this campus and in the classes that I had. Uh, and I also knew, and this is the last thing I want to say, because I know we need to break. For me, the experience I had here was about the liberal education illumining my life as a first-generation college student, as a person living in the 1970s and 1980s. It was not for me a matter of retreating somewhere back in time to escape from the present. Although, given our current culture, that doesn't sound too bad to me right now. It was not about that. It was about the way in which this, this, these marvelous teachers and wonderful set of texts and problems that were, I was uh, invited to consider shed light on my life and what I ought to be doing with my life. And I realized after the fact that I was already thinking about liberal education and my life, contemporary culture. Lots of places talk about liberal education. Frankly, they don't know what the hell they're talking about. We need to make clear that we have a deep and rich understanding of liberal education. And we have a deep and rich understanding of liberal education and how it illumines X, Y, and Z. How it illumines ministry, business, the sciences, the professions, medicine, law. Did a lot of that at Baylor 
40% of our students in the Honors College were pre-med, another 25 were business, about another 15 were pre-law, and then whatever, and the rest, a scattering across the entire university. We thought a lot about our core liberal arts education, which, by the way, I had what you all were doing up the hill here in mind the whole time. I was designing programs and working with faculty at Baylor University. So my vision is of a, a lot of times when people talk about liberal arts and the liberal arts means some superficial critical thinking thing that no one really knows what it's about. We're serious about the liberal arts here. We're serious about the Catholic and Western intellectual tradition. But we're also serious about the way in which that tradition, those uh, elements of liberal education illumine everything that we're about in the present. And that, I think, is a message that we want to bring to our alumni the, the board is already talking about these matters and the vision for the university. We also want to bring that to donors. And we want to get people excited about the University of Dallas that exists today. We need to stop thinking about just next fall or the latest crisis. Uh, one advantage I have is I came for every time in my interviews, people would say, well, you know, we had this bad issue at UD. I said, well, let me tell you a story about Baylor. As you all know, we had a lot of turbulence there uh, in, in the 16 years that I was there. Um, it's not fun, but you learn to keep moving. We need to be building, and we're always going to have to think about next year. Harvard and Duke think about next year. They worry about it. It's going to have to do that. But we also need to be thinking about the UD of the next 10, 20, 30, and 50 years. That's how you get people excited. Our job is to, um, to thank people. Our job is to do our job at a very high level as administrators. I see Brian Murray. I want to thank Brian for returning again to the CFO position. Let's, let's thank Brian. <laughs> Such a relief to have him uh, in this position. We also are grateful for and pray for the repose of the soul, Leonard Robertson, who worked here for a number of years and was a key member of the finance, but we're, I'm so grateful, so relieved that Brian gives us great confidence uh, in, um, in our financial office with him being back. People willing to serve like Brian, all of the work that all of you do, we need to promote it. Jason and I need to be out promoting it, and we plan to do that with as many people as possible. We need to build confidence, we need to build trust. If we don't do that, we will have failed the university, and we will have failed you. You all deserve that as faculty. Our students and alumni deserve that. I wouldn't have taken the job if I didn't see that as my primary task. So I thank you for welcoming me back, and uh, let's get to work. Thank you.